Rock and roll. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. Welcome to Rebet Live, episode 285. Learning a lot. Uh, talking to some great people over the years, um, and today's going to be no different. Today on the show, we have uh, Deborah Blackett. She is the General Counsel and Chief Governance Officer at Z Energy NZ. And if any of you who don't remember, Z uh, was one of the, the gas company that came on board. It helped our Yes to Success tour a couple of years ago when we traveled around the country in the Juicy Camper Vans. Thanks, Tim Alp and the gang. And um, so I've always had a you know soft spot in the heart for um, for the crew there. And uh, uh, Deborah re- reached out to me a little bit ago. So we thought, without further ado, jumping into the mix. Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Blackett. Yeah. How are you, Deborah? Good, thank you. How are you? A-OK. So you're in Wellington. I'm in San Fran. The joys of technology have connected us together. We're going to have a bit of a banter. How's, um? I guess there's more planes and stuff coming out direct in from Aussie, right? What's the what's the vibe there like? Are, we were at a, I was just saying we were on a flight path, so um, it's it's kind of racking up a wee bit. Beautiful day in Wellington, of course. It always is. Um, it's a it's a closely held secret because we don't want everyone to come here, but yeah, pretty gorgeous. <laughs> what's the? I was just going to maybe ask, what's the energy like? feeling the gates open a little bit for more people and energy and momentum and dollars and tourism and is it does oh, it feel like the, the opening of a new day yeah what's the vibe it's amazing and i think from from what i can see around me most of the people that have traveled straight away are doing so for quite intense personal reasons you know like there was a woman yep. on the news recently who had a daughter i think her daughter was 30 and had terminal cancer you know like they're really really powerful reconnections so it's less like the first people off the bat are not the people that are going over for tourist reasons. They're going over to connect with their families. Um, and that's pretty cool and pretty amazing. Mm. It's one of the tricky things, which there's been a couple of instances with around the whole two-week guaranteed quarantine, like, you know, for, for people of the past and funerals and flights, there's a lot of, um, you know, I've got uh, one today actually for a, a friend that I sort of grew up with, um, you know, and I can't be oh. there. You know, and and the in some ways it's kind of a funky thing because right. you know these things oh, lock down, and unfortunately there's a there's a lot of times where the, the the actual people can't be there in the room. So, you know, in many ways, I do think technology has enabled a lot more connection that is better than nothing. Like even just like FaceTime yeah. and Skype and whatever it may be. And you you rewind back even like ten you know ten years ago, start you know into two thousand nine ten, you know. Skype and FaceTime weren't really a full thing as much. So it's kind of, um, you know, for us, we've come a definitely a long way with it. And it's good that there is some type of connection, but obviously not as good as being there in person as well. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool, at least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So are you, a, so you're a lawyer as well? Like what's your, what's yeah, your deal? Yeah, like you're obviously yeah. very smart. Yeah, you're, you're everything. You, you get, do you get them in yeah, or out of um, trouble? In or out of trouble. I keep Z out of trouble mostly. Um, I lead the legal team at Z. I'm on the executive. I look after the board, um, that kind of stuff. So it's exciting. I love that company. Um, I'm really passionate about what I do. It's heaps of fun. Um, it's interesting. The um, maybe I'll jump there for a second. When you when you deal with boardrooms that are full of power and and money and and in many cases, you know, ego and confidence and prestige and titles and bullshit. And you've got to try and herd the cats. How do you how do you approach it strategically? I'm not even saying like as a woman, but as like a human being walking into the flipping room with like those things. When you know you've got um, tense agendas, maybe up or whatever else. How how have you successfully navigated the power yeah, of the boardroom? 
Um, our board is pretty progressive, so all of those things are true, uh, particularly at a company which is uh, core product is both essential and um, declining and going to face some kind of level of product liability in the future. So at the board, there's some really big decisions to make about whether you go into a green future, whether you keep doing what you're doing and kind of how you juggle that stuff. And it's really hard, right? Like there are no fuel companies in the world that have a successful blueprint out of this and Zed's trying to do that. Um, our board has... It's increasingly common, to, for example, to, to have board reviews by psychologists who actually look at the board dynamic and what's going on with people so that that stuff isn't so much, you know, and, and we will call things out like we don't allow the meeting outside the meeting, you know, like it used to be kind of 10, 15 years ago, you all go to the Wellington Club, you have a few drinks, the meeting's done by the time you get there. That doesn't happen anymore. And if it does, you pick it up and you call it out. So... There are very evolving and much more open practices around how you do that. And we had a um, corporate anthropologist come and talk to our board at the end of last year. He's really interesting. And he sat in and watched a day's work and then went, right, you know, this is what's going on with you and you and you and you. And here's how can you work more effectively. And and, and it was quite profound in terms of what we went to. Yeah. Corporate anthropologist. Jeez, that's that's very technical. Um, no, I asked because I, I got brought into um, a uh, very well-known company's exec team uh, from the CEO who I know. And I walked in the room and like, so I'm IQ, like, you know, I'm not smart on paper, but, you know, felt high school, the rest of it, but like, I can feel energy pretty good. And I remember I walked into the room and I could just feel the energy of like, holy shit, there is just so much like fake power and ego from these people that was about themselves, not about the, who they're actually there for, which was the customers. So I was trying to figure out how to navigate to get an uncomfortable mirror in front of themselves of self-awareness to realize yeah. that they're there for the people, not for them. And, I, and on the spot, I kind of was like, okay, maybe. And so I came up with this little thing and it, maybe, shit, maybe I am a cor corporate uh, anthropologist, but in a, in a formal yeah. life, um, I, I had this thing. I said, okay, if we think of uh, the headspace for the leadership in this organization, if we think of 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 1.0 the media sense might be, you know, old school, traditional new papers, radios, whatever. 2.0 is today with, you know, your apps and your phones and you're watching stuff on there. And then 3.0 would be like virtual headsets and AR and the crazy future, big data, AI bullshit. Where do you think you'd um, be if you were to put yourself on an ABC, one, two, three? Like, where do you think you'd fit in terms of, with the question being, how are you mentally prepared for this, this your skill sets for the future of where this business needs to go for the customers? And I told the CEO, I was like, do this exercise, and then got everyone to put their shit. And I said, now, after everyone pisses off, you shift the, the post-it notes to where you know they are, and then just send me a photo. And because I wanted him to to visually yeah, see the disconnect between where they thought they were mentally mm -hmm. for their mm -hmm. own skill set for the future of the business to the reality. And, and, and then what I was trying to get to him was like the disconnect in this room, isn't the strategy or the long-term winning this bullshit. The mm -hmm. disconnect in this flipping room is the energy and ego of the leaders thinking that they are flipping 3.0 A's when they're 1.0 B's or D's. Right. And so yeah. maybe I need to do some Googling. I didn't even have even heard of that word corporate anthropologist, but. We use um, Zoom and Zoom Out. Are you familiar with that? So you the, the Zoom yeah, Out narrative. So so it's so interesting. So you take a Zoom Out narrative and you go and you go to ten or twenty years. So one of the mistakes we all make is we say, "Oh, the future's too uncertain." And the more that we tell ourselves that, the shorter and shorter term 
that we work and we start working with something called emergent strategy, which we believe is a strategy and it's not right. It's just reacting to what's in front of you. But if you actually go out far enough in the fuel industry, it's, the, the future's really obvious, right? Like not, not this year and not next year and probably not till 2030, right? But in 20 years, we can see what's happening in our industry. And then what you do is you take your zoom in, which is your next six months, and you do the top three things that are important for that zoom out narrative, nothing else. And you drop your three to five year plan because your three to five year plan will always fail. So if we took a three to five year plan, then, then the fuel demand in New Zealand is probably going to go up. It's not going to peak till something like 2030. So we would just keep doing what we were doing and then we'd crash and burn and die. Um, if, on the other hand, you take the, the 20 year plan and you start doing stuff now, then you, then you start, for example, you know, selling down your steel assets and building a fund for your green assets and, and you start kind of going along that path. Um, it's a really, really simple process, um, but it's really, really cool. We're, we're bringing a full zoom and zoom out strategy to our board in June, I think. See, it's interesting. Like, I, I come from sports and hip hop, so everything's always mm-hmm. sport and competitive. So, my brain just reads that as like uh, chess, not checkers, playing long game, and then offense, not yeah. defense. You know, where it's like you're playing basketball, not soccer. You're trying to shoot, yeah. shoot, shoot. So it's like, cool. But and and it validates that thinking. But I think that that piece of the three to five year reverse engineering the end goal to the short term next steps mm-hmm. being directly aligned to what you know is the inevitable in the macro. That's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. That's smart. So what's it called? Zoom out. You're rolling six months means if that 20 years shifts and you're wrong and there's an inflection point, something happens. You can react to that. It's not like you're locked and loaded. Because your strategy is not a twenty-year one; it's only a six-month one. But your your vision and where you're going is a twenty-year one. So maybe on that, if you look at the um, not to get down the oil pathway for a second, but say if you go the the way Dubai is trying to, I guess, reposition itself somewhat successfully, it failed with the palms and a few bits and pieces. But is that the right macro yeah. strategy for becoming that that financial and entertainment mecca outside of of oil? Like, are, do you feel that they are on track? for their so. long-term sustainability as relevance in the world? Some are, some aren't. Um, but I, I think I think the track to success is getting yourself out of the short to the medium term. I think you focus on what's yeah. in front of you and, you, and you're dead. Hmm. Yeah, have a good, good bloody thing. What percentage of New Zealand boards do you feel are accurately executing on the zoom in, zoom out strategy from COVID to today? Off you, if any. Yeah, um, right. I'd say, it's, okay, so. I'd say it's emergent. So COVID's a really good example, right? Like in New Zealand, we go, oh, that's all over. That's all done. But um, we have some advice that it's at least six years before it's done in the rest of the world. And you'd, you'd be really naive to imagine that what's happening in the rest of the world isn't impacting on New Zealand planning, right? So if you plan to be kind of, BAU in New Zealand because we've managed to get ourselves out of the hump, um, then that's that's naive, right? Um, and, and everything that you read about climate science will tell you that there will be another pandemic. This isn't going to be. And so we, we, what we should be doing is building a pandemic-proof kind of culture. So in New Zealand, that would be um, dedicated facilities to quarantine people rather than the hotels that we're using at the moment, you know, and set ourselves up better for the next time. Hmm. Yeah, obviously, I don't want you. I mean, you're a lawyer, you probably know how to navigate verbal sound bites to not get pulled in for what you represent in your personal opinion versus the brand. But one of the things that I've been kind of intrigued with is the potential lost commercial opportunity at a 
if you zoom out for what New Zealand had in the last year, which was movement, logistical freedom, yeah. uh, people connection in person to the work, to the entire rest of the world for, for a, let's say for, for a year. And I just wonder, and if I take the timestamp of these conversations and if I fast forward out a decade or two and you look back and I wonder if the nation's leadership may have regret that they didn't go harder in certain things to give more commercial upside for the opportunities that were actually available to us when logistically we had a lot more options or availability than us. I don't know what the answers would have been, but I just wonder when, when the world stops, but we can still go to some respect, is there something else we maybe could have done that was bigger than what look, we did? Because we've got good, well, yeah, that, was, that was the thing I've been thinking about. Yeah. Look, almost certainly, and I think and I think it's a really good example of uh, continuous learning because we did the best that we knew at the time that we knew how, and then we figured out, and then, you know, and then solve new problems as they came up and solve new problems as they go up. And I think that's the point where, you know, get a really decent pandemic plan in for the next time and make sure you do learn on this because the whole pandemic problem is keeping an economy going and keeping people safe. And when those are diametrically opposed, you've got a massive juggling problem. Mm. And I think compared to what we knew a year ago or 18 months ago, we would do all that stuff differently. And I think that's about that's about taking the long view and saying, not, oh my God, that was that was such a freak event. Um, let's just get back mm. to our lives. We go, there's probably going to be another pandemic and what do we need to build and what do we need to know so that we can both keep people safe and keep an economy going. I think it's possible to do that. Mm. Well, I remember when uh, we first went to level four lockdown, I interviewed a whole bunch of different crew that knew. And one of the guys, uh, Tony Falkenstein, uh, the man, yeah. weapon, champion, um, he actually had a pandemic plan built into his own business that was documented in board meetings that were done from ages ago. He forgot he'd done it. And then his EA rolled us up and was like, yo, Tony, you, you know, we've actually done this shit. And he's like, we did. And like everyone, no one had a plan. And he was like, holy shit, I, I did this ages ago. It's flipping great. And out of all the companies I talked to, there was in the bigger the corporates, there's obviously sort of plans, but not specifically yeah. drilled yeah. down to exactly who was going to do what specifically in each yeah. different vertical within the organization if a pandemic happened. And I just had to give him credit because I was like, mate, it is so you're the one percent. Like all these leaders getting paid all this shit, and you've actually got at least documented down. So you would hope, maybe I'll ask this question after the last 12 months since the pandemic, what percentage of companies do you think still don't have a full pandemic plan for their entire business end to end? I'd be amazed if they didn't. Um, we yeah. had one. And it was amazing in the first, I don't know, week. Um, and then it, it evolved, right? But it was enough to get the structures up who does what roles and responsibilities, be able to keep the service stations going, be able to reach out to the terminals, um, figure out how to put footprints in place and lock down the windows and, you know, put the PPE yeah. and the screens up. So we were able to manage all of that stuff. And then we found that the pandemic plan didn't deal with this or didn't deal with that. And we've revised it at the end of it and we and we continue to keep it, it revising it. By the time we were in the third or the fourth lockdown, we didn't even need the central team, the individual teams like the retail sites. Everybody knew what they were doing. It was just automated. But that was through to having an organised plan in the first place, which isn't a terribly Z thing. Like, we talk about having freedom in a framework, so we're not a policy-heavy business and we're not a heavy command and control business, but the plan was very command and control and it was easy to jump in and then out of that mode. 
Well, I know when we went into lockdown because we had um, Jolly Hodgson, Sierra Spark, and Jason Paris from um, Voter on, and obviously they'd comboed up together and they were giving you know free data out through all this sort of stuff. There was kind of a, a, a collective effort and unification from the telco side in terms of comms with what people yeah. would need. Did the say the planning, the kind of blueprint that you sort of come up with, did the, the gas industry or any of the other different verticals and industries that you deal with, were you sharing IP? Were people kind of coming together to share this knowledge on how they could be doing it for their own businesses or yeah. did everyone kind of hold their own fort? Like how was the back-end comms of, of alignment? Bit of both. The government had an essential services group that we dialed into weekly. Um, so that was um, the telcos, power companies, um, refinery so all of those groups got together and talked weekly and shared information um other than that it was a bit more ad hoc because you're so busy doing what you're doing that, that kind of stuff happened more afterwards and that's where the board will come in and say hey that was really really good could you share some information with another board that we we're on and so it was more in that kind of review and revision stage than when you're actually in it hmm. yeah cool um the future with where you feel um, maybe leadership for these bigger businesses. How do you think leaders are now more ready, either mentally or emotionally, or, or or preparedness for the future? Like, do you think this has actually genuinely exposed more bad leaders, or helped build up more good ones? <laughs> like, what do you? Both. Think? Both. You know, yeah, the people that. Right? Yeah, you know, like the people that thrived are the people that can deal with change, that can roll their sleeves up. Um, can be adaptable, all those kinds of stuff. And the learning that comes out of that is you can never fight change, right? It's totally constant. Mm -hmm. And um, your ability to just get stuff done when you're kind of in that mode, no matter what kind of chaos is going on around you, mm -hmm. to keep your customers at the fore, to keep serving people, to keep doing what you're there to do, um, those are the leaders that really, really stood out. Um, the people that panicked, um, we're, lo we're looking for policies and rules and what to do. That's tough. That was really tough. Yeah. For, for me, I could kind of feel the energy of um, like bad leadership. Like leadership was exposed, right? It was either yeah. you yeah. didn't know because everything was so transparent because you had to be so present for every single thing uh, in real time. Every yeah. gap was amplified and then every yeah. bond that was tight got tighter. So it kind of felt like it was this crazy weave of half of the shit just got locked in and like charged. And the other half was just like stuff. it. so my kind of prediction from it last year when it happened, I was like, I think boards are either about to fire the most about a CEOs ever in the history in the shortest amount of time ever. And I think, and my prediction was within three years, I think there was going to be the next biggest percentage of young CEO leaders take over companies that are more, um, mental technology uh, technically prepared for the future of what that could bring and and, I, and I've started to see little slivers of it come through but I think there's a crest or there's a momentum shift happening there because um, in many respects it feels like a lot of businesses it was the perfect way to exit out weak leadership and they also yeah. had you know the perfect time to kind of use COVID as the shield of umbrella of 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 weak weak business leadership as well. I kind of felt that there was a bit of a scapegoat mentality through what it it, it gave as well. My, that was what I saw yeah. anyway. Yeah, I think the other thing was the great leaders were the ones that just kept talking to their people and kept making meaning. Like when you're in a time of chaos mm. and massive change, people 
you've got to accept that often people on the leadership team are more comfortable with change. That's why they're there in the first place. And lots of the people that you are working with you aren't. They're scared. They don't know what's happening. Um, mm. You know, for people that our, our engagement for our women workers went down, which is really, really unusual. Um, but COVID for women was really tough, right? Like there's a, there's a McKinsey paper from the States which says that a lot of women just left the workforce, like the juggling at home and all of that kind of stuff. It was just so hard. So to understand what people's lived experience is like and be able to connect with that. So we talked to the whole business, um, whether it was Michael, whether it was other leaders every Friday and often more frequently, we did COVID updates, what the COVID team's doing, what it means to you, um, what's happening. And we did, we over-communicated. Our engagement scores of our people actually went up um, during that time. So our learning was talk and talk a lot more often and stop writing things. Um, yeah, just even visualizing. You know, we, we had um, Craig Hudson, uh, we were talking to him about, and he was doing like daily little mini video snippets and stuff. Jason Paris was doing a similar thing on the Snack channels and whatever it was, which was which is kind of cool to see in good yeah. leadership as well. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I don't actually don't know how to segue into this next bit here, Deborah, because you reached out to me for a reason. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you I know I'm trying try to be smart with my, my... you okay, can just, you so, can just cut, Deborah. Okay, so well, it's not cut. We're actually live, Deborah. So I'm trying to figure out how to how to smoothly segue. But there's no there's no like real easy way to go from like COVID uh, leadership into the topic of domestic violence. Actually, there is. Uh, I will yeah, actually is. I know how because yep because through lockdown, we're talking to with Lisa King, one of the biggest fears that she ha had uh, for kids not being at school is school was an escape mm -hmm. for many because at home wasn't safe and there was a lot of violence that was going on and when. There were parents at home which were stressed without not working at home. And if school was the escape for many for partners, um, there was a, a severe increase in the mental health side of things. Also, the physical violence that was done on children and partners. There you go. Yeah, I've that, somehow done that, it. That is so, <laughs> well, so you, you reached out to me. I think um, the, the context is um, we hadn't met before, but you saw my interview with Puck. Now... Mm -hmm. You commented on my thing and I want to reach out to you. What mm -hmm. was the key driver from that chat? Because I got given, and you would have, you commented on, I got given a, some shit. I got given shit for um, giving him a platform to have his say and, mm -hmm. to, and to speak. And my kind of take on it was, well, there's obviously two sides to everything. There's, you know, his and, and, and obviously the victim side too. And then you reached out to me from the victim side. So what was the key driver for you in making that comment, which sparked the attention for us to get to this point? So the, the thing that I want to say mostly is I have some lived experience of being in a um, violent relationship, but I don't stand here as an expert or as a poster child or as a representative but what I do have a lived experience of is the fact that domestic violence is seen as a problem for women and for women to solve. Um, and that's the, the you know, age-old question, why doesn't she just leave? And I kind of wanted to address why she doesn't leave, and even if she does. Oh. So first of all, why doesn't she leave? Um, I, that can be really, really bad advice, and it's the only advice that people are ever given. And one of the reasons it's bad advice is that 50% of partner homicides happen at or around the point of separation. So it's not it's not necessarily the solution to domestic violence, right? And when we tell people women to do that, we don't put security and planning and support around them. They're left on their own to kind of navigate how to do that and how to stay safe. Not mm -hmm. that I'm suggesting that women shouldn't leave. Of course they should, you know, run for your life. 
But the other problem with telling women to leave is our only solution to domestic violence is that it assumes the problem's finished, that you can kind of chuck the guy away. He's a bad guy. He's on some kind of scrap heap. He's not. He's in a new relationship. And he's probably now a bit more pissed off than he was before because his wife's left. He may or may not have lost access to his kids. He's paying child support, which he doesn't think he should have to because it wasn't his decision. Um, his family are pretty mad at her too. And she's got in-laws now that are like, what have you done to my son? You know, he's lost his job. You've got all that stuff going on. Now he's got a new partner. His chip on his shoulder is a bit worse than it used to be. And the kids he's living with aren't his anymore. They're stepkids. And so on and so forth. So if I reflect on my situation, because I don't want to kind of identify my partner, but let's say mine was a couple of decades ago. Since then, I have had five to seven relationships. I've got three kids. My husband's got four kids. Um, they're young adults, teenagers and young adults. Um, so that's seven. Uh, three of them are in permanent relationships, 10 uh, two grandbabies, 12 plus partners, that's 19. So I've let's say I've had 19 direct, 19 direct family relationships. That's not exes, stepkids. That's just our family system. So let's say my partner's had the same, right? Let's say he's had 19. So I left, and that's awesome. That doesn't fix anything for him and his 19 people. And that's where the Puck interview comes in, right? Puck's 19 people... Yes, he has some ex-partners that he's caused some damage to, and he acknowledges that. But his 19 people, he's only 30, and like you said, he's got two-thirds of his life to go, and he can address his behaviour with those 19 people. When you look at my ex-partner, he's definitely had a son that I know of. I don't know about any other children, but what happens to the sons is they grow up to emulate their, their fathers, as Puck said. What happens to the daughters, which he didn't address, is assuming they're heterosexual they're much more likely to get in relationships with men like their dads. And, and so we go on. One of the things Puck talked about was that he had a 12-year-old son who was kind of on the yeah. periphery of gay life, and Puck was looking at pulling him back in. I've been following Puck's Instagram, and last night he posted this really cool shot of him and his 12-year-old son in the car, and it said, father-son date, I love you, boy. Right? And all of my heart, hopes that he pulls his son back. And if he hasn't, he's done everything he can to do that. Now, if the mother had left and Puck had continued in his behaviour, it doesn't help anybody. It helps her. I don't want to minimise the woman's situation, but she can't fix it. She can't change it. And another one, example I want to give you is because it's been, I actually think there's a fundamental sexism in the idea that women have especially vulnerable and disempowered women, have any capacity to kind of turn this around, which is why my focus is so much on men. When I left my partner, um, as predictable, the violence escalated and he came around to my house and there was an assault. The police prosecuted that and they were actually really good. He pleaded guilty. Um, I was sent on a course and I'm a lawyer now and I think back and I think it can't possibly have been compulsory because I didn't do anything. But I didn't know that. So I went to Parnell every week and I made baskets and I dyed pillowcases um, with a bunch of other domestic violence victims. And we were taught about domestic violence and really chilling. But I remember as the teacher saying that the reason domestic violence um, prevails is because it works. So you have a tension building cycle 
and then you have a violent incident and then you have a remorse cycle and a kind of restoration cycle. And what she was challenging us to do as victims was intervene in that cycle and learn a more positive way, you know, of sorting out the violence. We weren't the perpetrators. You know, my partner didn't go on a course. Um, we had by and large why, why, why are you going to a course when he I didn't dump you? I have no idea, right? And my basket was pretty good. I was pretty pleased with that because I'm not a crafty person. But um, Sounds like free labour, you know, mate. You know, they were just like hustling you for the Sunday morning fair. <laughs> right? It was a, this was a long time ago. I, I hope that's not happening now. But it's a really good example of the fact that the woman was supposed to somehow fix it, which is like saying that Pakeha should fix Māori issues. You know, like men need to fix men's issues. And people like Pak are powerfully doing that. And we need mm. to look at them. Men are, men are victims too. I mean, Park said all he's got out of his toxic kind of masculinity is five years jail, right? Um, I heard Teeks, who you might want to talk to next on this, um, talk about progressive masculinity, which I thought was a really beautiful phrase. I don't know if it's a movement or if it's just a thing that he talked about, but to move from a toxic masculinity into a progressive masculinity is something men have to do. Women can't do it. Um, and I commend people like that, right? Like most people live their entire lives without fronting up to who they are and what they've done and their impact on other people. It's a scary and dark place to go for all of us. And the fact that he did it at 33 or at 30, um, more power to him. And I hope that he leads other people out of this. You know, we don't get to just chuck him out because he did something bad. Yeah, it's shitty. Great ramble there, flipping solid, Deborah. You covered some good ground. I, I like that. The if you if you zoom out, right? So I was at this other. I was at a conference. It was this kind of um, a conference about minorities in the um, in the creatives industry, and this yeah. um, this female got up and she was the. Uh, number one employee at Beats by Dre, which Apple bought for like $6 billion mm -hmm. and some shit, right? Like Jimmy Irving got her in. So she's a flipping yeah. weapon. And she, they were, uh, so you got asked about equality in the workplace with women versus men. Yeah. And she goes, nothing's changing men by women getting together to talk about women's issues. Flipping get in with the, you need to educate the men yeah. to do it. And everyone's there like, yeah. what? And then, so they go, so you wouldn't go to like a women's conference for business. He's like, no, because the change needs to come from men and there's no men in the audience. So what are you changing? I was like, holy yeah, shit. But, no, yeah, we, have women's, we have women's lunches at work and I encourage men to come along and a few brave souls do each time, but we, we need them there. We need them in the room. Yeah, I, I had um uh, a little bit ago, one of my most scary situation so or Ryan back a bit uh good friends with a, um, a lady named Lillian Grace who's also awesome awesome female and she was talking about uh how you know most boards she goes to or boardrooms they go around and it's just basically all kind of men right and, and she's sort of there yeah. and so I, I was going in and um and somehow it got around to what's your most fairish thing of all time that you'd want a room you'd want to walk into and then I was like oh man if it was like a flipping Saturday Arvo and I walked into like, um, you know, eight to 10 drinking uh, females age 40 to 50 on the second <laughs> bottle of wine and just me, that is my flipping yeah. nightmare because they're old enough that they're going to say exactly what's up. They're with their crew, so they're just going to flip and go savage and they're going to be dead front on us. Yeah. And so one of my goals for the next year was like, I need to go into like the den of what I feel is the most scariest thing yeah. for me. And then what Lillian said, which was interesting, she goes, 
she goes, you realize that's exactly how I feel every time I go into a boardroom. And I was like, I'd never thought of the same translation. I was like, it was, it was super insightful. So the next year I actually went into a room um, full of, uh, with that demographic, they weren't drinking luckily. Um, And it was so intimidating for me. And I was like, holy shit. So this is how it feels. And then then just recently I was talking to, to, to wifey, and like I'm, I'm six foot three hundred kgs, hundred maybe yeah. a bit plus of you know had a few corona pounds, but um, I went past this guy who was six foot eight, and the dude was jacked, right, like flipping jacked. And I walked yeah. past and was like, holy shit, that like I feel intimidated because it's flipping big rig. And she's like, well, you know, anyone under six foot looks at you like that, right? Because you're six three and hundred. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And she's like, do you not? And and I'd never like seen that lens on it before, like I call them lenses. And it gave me a day, way different sort of perspective for say a situation like this, but to, to revert back before we digress on other stuff, how do you think men in New Zealand are currently dealing with domestic violence when they talk with other men about it? And then when they know what's happening, like what do you think the state of the union is right now when it comes to domestic violence at home for a, a modern man in New Zealand? Not. And I think, what I want to say about men in New Zealand too is we have a horrible suicide rate. Our men are struggling massively with masculinity. So this isn't just about calling them out. This is harming them as well. Um, my experience, which I can talk to, is the partner I live with, um, domestic violence, was common enough um, in that family and in that friendship group that the first time I had a black eye and a split lip and was in a family situation, it was almost like a blooding, like the women took me in their arms and were like, oh, you know, men, what can you do? And he was kind of, he wasn't a high five, but it was along those lines, like, oh, you know, that's just how it is. And I can remember when I was in court saying at the ripe old age of 21 to the judge that I had no faith in the justice system and he kind of laughed and said, well, what do you want to happen? And I said, well, I don't want him to go to jail, but I want him to know it's not normal. And in my really young words, that's what I was trying to say is, is this this isn't how things are. But they are. I don't think anybody, I talk to him, um, my women friends, my sister, um, my best friend talked to him. Um, I don't think there were any men in his life that thought that there was anything wrong. Um, another really chilling thing that happened to me, which gives me a lot of insight, is that we had a particularly... Uh, Nasty incident at our flat. There was a lot of broken glass. There was a lot of blood. Um, in the morning, we went into A and E um, and got stitched up and stuff. And when we got back, the flat had been cleaned. And later on, it was a Sunday. We went around to his parents for dinner. And his mother said, "Oh, thank God! I thought he'd killed you." Um, and she, that's what she would have. That's what she would have done. Um, and I often think about that with the why don't you leave and stuff. There's, there's, I don't want to make this about me. Um, there's nowhere to go for a lot of women and their families and their friends are not addressing it. They're cleaning up. <sighs> it's a tr- and the family, it's- yeah, families, again, my experience was um, my partner's mother saying, you know, do you want him to go to jail? Do you want him to lose his job? And of course I didn't, right? Like, So going to the police, it's, it's again assuming that women can fix this. Going to the police doesn't help. You try waving a protection order at somebody who's kind of, you know, like this is not a woman's problem. 
it's a man's problem. And as you point out, it's the it's the men and the people around that man. And it's about leading into progressive masculinity and taking the other men with you. That's the, that's the only way to yeah. the the one where my, my brain goes to is this idea of, you know, like where can tough men talk about tough things? You know, where where and you know, visually in terms yeah. of business leadership, you've got new leaders coming through. You've got like the, the bit of the, the Mike King movement, the John Kerwin using the Trojan horse of mental yeah. health. There yeah. are men that are opening yeah. that door of the tough shield as the kind yeah. of the Trojan the, the kind of the um it is a Trojan horse to talk about the tough things, but in specifically in the, the Boise state, like you rewind back, you know, uh, 10, 20 years ago, whatever, maybe in some circles now, there'd always be those jokes of, you know, oh, what, what do you tell a um, you know, female with uh, two black eyes? It's like nothing. She's already been told twice or some shit or, or with a black eye, whatever it is. And it's like, ha, 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 ha. And then you just sort of stop for a second. And I even just recently, I put a photo up of um, uh, like wife beater singlets, you know, and I was yeah. thinking, when like so i forget who it was or so, somehow it popped up and i'm like i'd never thought when you say oh yeah just get my wife beater on whatever actually yeah. like you are giving a brand of kind of humor to something which isn't humorous you are giving energy and tension to almost like normalize normalize 100 percent to, to normalize that yeah. thing which clearly is not so it's these little pieces right and i just i i hope if i zoom out to a a, a, a 30,000 view of say new, new zealand men if it was tough rah-rah all black shit john Kerwin opened the door to to this mental health the mike king coming through with some depth the you know the richie hardcore is going through with with feel and and youth and pornography and and partnerships then you go with a a craig hudson with authentic leadership at the top and there are it feels like there's these um like kernels of seeds of opportunity and positivity and things which could be good but at the soul of it when um these men who have bottled up emotions can't communicate. They don't have trusted circles because it's all rah-rah shit. That just builds, right? And like I've seen it happen a million times um, with, you know, you, you can you can see when these things bubble because they don't have those outlets. So maybe a, a, a bigger question would be, how could you scale out a Trojan horse to let more New Zealand tough men talk about tough things? Like th- like that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question because – like say in America, there's the barbershop mentality, right? With African Americans, is you go to the barbershop, you talk around, yeah. you talk shit, blah blah. Like that's 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 it's a it's a it's a place. Yeah. I guess within Maori or Ewidam, you've got you've got um you know marae where you think, but I'm just I guess I'm trying to figure out is there a ninja move for trying to scale out a potential Trojan horse for tough men to talk about tough things? Do you if you if you could rave the magic wand, how would you do it? To, that would be amazing. I, I don't know the how, but I can share that vision, and I believe that vision's the answer. I believe I believe that it lies with men, and I think you give men freedom as well as women. I, I just I don't think what we're doing now, this myopic focus on women leaving men, is just hopeless. It just repeats a cycle, and it gets worse over time. The violence gets worse. It gets closer together. Um, you know jail and broken families and all that kind of stuff. The only thing you've got is what you're talking about. And I think you probably mop up a lot of stuff at, at the same time. Um, all the men that don't identify with the tough New Zealand masculine model and really suffer for it, really, really feel bad about themselves and find it hard. LGBTQI, I must you think, A. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
you know, those communities would help, would be benefited enormously from that kind of thing. Our suicide rates would come down. So, yeah, I think talk to teams about figure out what a progressive masculinity is and then figure out what your Trojan horse is. I would love to see that. I think the one other thing that I would say is, is there is a stigma to, to being the woman with black eyes, right? Like um, it's a very stigmatic thing, which again is about making it a woman's problem. And I have a memory of going to work with a black eye and there was a couple of reasons for that. One was it's not like you can take a day off. It's going to take a week to 10 days to go away. Um, and two was, embarrassingly, I think in my um, naive youth, I was probably hoping somebody would say something will help. My mother died when I was nine, and I think I went into work thinking somebody would help. So it was pretty hideous. So this woman, oh, I remember her name, but I won't say it, um, asked me to come and talk to her in the bathrooms, and I was like, oh, this is it. You know, she's going to help me. And she said, um, you're making people uncomfortable. You need to go home. Um and, and I, but I think there's a lot of it, right? Like, and so I now have, for the rest of my life, I have a practice of always asking women, including strangers, if I can see injury. So I was in Subway a few weeks ago and there was this woman with this massive egg on her head. And I immediately jumped thinking, oh my God, somebody slammed her into a wall. And so I said, oh, you know, big egg. And she was like, yeah, the Subway oven was open down this way and when I was putting the bread in. And it was fine. Um, um, but I always ask, I always think if there's a little me out there, I will be the woman that if she sees this happen to me, I'll help. Um, and I think that's something, a practice we can all do because we see these women. Um, we, we do see them around us and it's embarrassing and it's awkward, um, but they might be in their own way asking for help and they might not have anybody else but, but a stranger to reach out and, and, yeah, find them some help and support. I don't know if it's your strategic approach to either business or whatever, but but going straight to the heart of um, leaving is not the answers necessarily digs open mm -hmm. a, something a bit deeper where then it's about not necessarily saving the one, but it's saving the many. Right. And you, you, you know, you save help that one and you almost save, you save, save the 20. So yeah. with say Puck's situation, right. So he um, uh, is still with his partner. And he's obviously yep. making these changes and doing these things. Like clearly their relationship through it, he's having mm -hmm. to navigate a different way of dealing with emotion. His outlet and his escapism clearly was the gym, right? Goes yeah. out, gets it. Like, he, yeah. you know, these, these sort of routines and stuff. You know, when you were uh, coming up through your experiences, did you see any like new routines that saved other other men from this like did what what have you seen that's worked when it comes to helping change men's attitudes ego emotion for whatever all that happened for me was leaving and that took a lot of times a lot of attempts thank you to my um amazing sister because i would never have done it on my own and then ultimately my grandparents paid for me to go to australia because he kept finding the new places that i lived in and going to australia was just enough of a fire break um that um, he moved on and got another partner. So that's the only thing that helped for me. Um, I had good friends, a good system. I went on to law school. You know, my I turned my life around, which is great, right? For me, it's a success story. There's no doubt about that. And I would totally urge women to do that if they can do it safely and securely. Of course they should. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, I was lucky I didn't have children during that period. I was lucky I wasn't economically dependent. Um, I was lucky it was a pretty short time frame. 
and compared to most women, my experience was definitely at the mild end. Um, but I, I didn't see anything change on the men's side of things. Yeah, that, I was talking to someone recently and he had um, done very well for himself, IPO'd a company in his early 20s, dude stacked, he's crushing it. Uh, he went down to a, a dangerous space around alcohol and we started, we were talking yeah. about how it spiraled and he literally said, and I kind of called him, I was like, did you just have not a tight inner circle that kept you in check and you just, you yeah. were surrounded by a bunch of enablers that just did it? And he was like, yes. And so, you know, yes. you're young, you got ego, you got cash and everyone says, yes, you're just in go mode, right? And then you wonder, he was enabled to spiral into this world of alcoholism and whatever because there wasn't that, there was a, and he even said it was like, there was a lack of accountability for someone that I respected that was next to me. And, and yeah. I think that is the part where I'm like, okay, well, back to that point around how do you get tough men to talk about tough things? Um, there has to be, it, it feels like it's not even, like I'm not saying, that it's obviously part of it, it's not that woman leaves men or woman needs to fix a man, but if yeah. the man gets accountable to men with vulnerability, that becomes yeah. more like glue. Like, for and, example, what like, we do... Um, a tough man. Remember Puck said that? Like, so I'm sure the woman in his life had talked to him, um, but it was when he had strong, um, good role model men come into his life that he turned around. He was never going to listen to anybody else but people that had sufficient mana for him to um, to feel that he wanted to follow them, and that's what he's providing for other men. Um, and somebody like me showing up and talking to those guys, you know, it's a waste of time. But somebody like Puck can provide them with a way of being a strong, tough guy with a lot of money and being a really good man um, to the people in his life. I think you brought up the, the, the point there before, the that credible authenticity or accountability from someone close to you comes with money because it comes down to that respect, right? Like yeah. who steps in the room? And like I remember yeah. I, I was at this um, event and uh, Sir Willie Apiata walked in and his presence individually as a human I was like, mm -hmm. holy shit. It felt like not flipping Jesus or some shit walked in the room, but it was like the dude has this like, it was like yeah. an aura. It was a flipping thing. And, and just the whole place was just, the dude got a, like a stand innovation before he even started talking. Cause he just, it was something about his, um, the, the energy, the mana, the, the, the weight of his presence and what he represented and what he had done. And, and you wonder, you, you know, if you if you ninja move a pivot from what John Kerwin did for mental health to what Puck potentially yeah. could represent for domestic yeah. violence, that's the shit, right? You put Puck in a flipping Sachi's or a Calenzo yeah. or some one of those, you flip them, get some government funding behind that for that, and then it's like, cool, now let's help. Now, obviously, he's going to have his own challenges and, it, and everyone's not perfect and all the rest of the bullshit, but there, there are blueprints that exist in other issues yeah, which have created yeah. more stickability in terms of ideas right 100 yeah. percent. yeah and you fix the intergenerational stuff and you fix his son and his daughters and everybody his 19 people um rather than just saving his partner and it's got to yeah. be scalable about it it's got to be scalable and it's like the um that's why I keep going back to John Kerwin thing. Like I understand it was a campaign, but it wasn't about the campaign. Yeah. It was that he represented something so much greater than himself that the Trojan horse of like, oh, I've got the, I've got a case of the JKs today, or because he, yeah. he created that 
field that they could slip on to then talk about the thing. And that's where the ninja move was. The ninja move wasn't the fact that he was talking about mental health. The ninja move was that he front footed and verbalized it publicly, the thing which was uncomfortable, which made it an easy, it was like a gateway drug or great gateway drug of opportunity to then talk about the thing which gave depth, right? That's the, that's the tweak. So you, yeah, see, we do I'll some do good it. shit here, Deborah. All right, we're trying to whiff up and we're trying to get some good IP ducks in the way. But on that, right? Like, let, let's go down that route for a second. The 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 manner of his, let's say for Puck, for example, like not that we're using him as a case study, talking about him without him being here, but a a a massive, physically intimidating, visually gnarly looking Maori dude, yeah. who's yeah. from straight gang street shit <laughs> that has literally like you can see the transition the way he talks his energy his aura and everything that dude could walk in a room of corporates of flipping prison guards yeah. of prison inmates of flipping schools of anything and and I, where i like the intrigue with something like that is this um i've had a i mean to a way smaller degree I've walked in rooms where I've been supposed to speak and people thought I was the secure, the flipping security guard at a party oh. or the flipping, the, 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 the AV technician or some shit. Cause I was just like some dude wearing a hat and like, obviously like I'm pretty casual, but there's something intriguing about when there's a visual disconnect between the perception of what they think yeah, you're right. for how you look yeah. to the, to the yeah. actual representation of it. And I think that that is not, in my opinion, anyway. I don't think that's a liability. I I believe it's an asset because it's an asset yeah. because it disarms the other side and it makes you not a threat because you don't look like them, roll like them, talk like them, act like them, dress like yeah. them. And when you combo all of that shit together, say with DV, maybe maybe it's like you know how do you how would you give a creative brief leveraging the assets of the blueprint that exists from John Kerwin with the the visual ambassadorship of a couple of these other Kiwis and go, yeah. all right you've got 10 million bucks what are you going to do with this what's that sticky idea that creates the thing because if you rewind all the way back we don't have those the only mo domestic violence is humorous when it comes to once we're warriors because so many people would joke about the movie because they beat up women right and it's the boysies the rah-rah the bullshit all that it's like well like i remember um yeah like people would like laugh about that movie with it and then someone saw it and i was like no, no that's not a joke that's real like i think maybe even me and puck and stuff talked about it I think and right. yeah yeah do, do you think, so if you were to wave a magic right yeah yeah People live really no, very lonely yeah does it do you feel like say right now if you're a female in a relationship you've got young kids and you're at home and you're fearful you're obviously not a not a you know, expert. So you're not trying to play Jesus for a second, but how would you approach getting to safety in 2021 different to, to 1990? Would it be the same? Would it be different? Would it be like, how would you approach it differently knowing what you know now? You there? Have we lost her? Shit. Give me one second, team. 
I hope not. Let me give me one sec. Oh, team, we may have lost her. We've lost Ebra. The chat was going so good. Damn it. What has happened? Oh, I'll be so bummed if we lost that. Debra, come back. Maybe her, um, maybe she was, uh, the powers run out of her laptop. Maybe she'll plug back in and join us back. Oh, it was such a good chat. We're doing so good. If you, I'll just put this here. If you're still watching here and you'd like to jump in the mix and join, join the show to have your two cents, because I'm actually keen to keep this conversation going if you're still um, listening. Click the link and jump in, and then hopefully Deborah joins us. And there were so many good things in there. There were so many good ideas. Um, I'm just going to bring it up. I hope we didn't lo lose that. Maybe she'll come back to us. Um, if, you are, uh, if you are watching or listening, um, hopefully we're back in, in the mix. Katrina's been making a bunch. Shit. Damn it, I think we may have lost it. All right, if anyone else is uh, listening or watching, we had Deborah Blackett on. Oh, the banter was going so good. I'm just genuinely pissed because it was good. Uh, talking about Divest Advance, how you potentially do it or tweak it or change it to try and make New Zealand better um, to try and take it on. Damn it. Oh, so good. This is going live soon. That might be us, team. We'll give her another minute to see if she comes back. Deborah Blackett, we're, we're going so well. I think her laptop must have died. Something's flipping happened. Damn it. Um, if you've got any questions, feel free to turn in. But there's so many good points that she was talking about. Like, how do you how do you open up that Trojan horse for men to talk about it? How do you how do you shift that flipping dial, right? Chatter was good. Damn it. All right, I'll give it one more minute and then we'll, we'll we'll bail out. Something's happened, team. I don't know exactly what, but something's flipping happened. Oh, is she back? Is she back? Please be back. Deborah, be back. Please tell me you It just, no, my laptop just went blue and started screaming. It's okay now. Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I was just holding the fort. I was like, oh, that we were going so good. I was like, come on, it was so good. <laughs> I know. So we were just starting to crack it. Yeah. Oh, Once the warrior. No, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a point, point around um, you can't – it says a lot about culture if the things which are the, uh, the most uncomfortable we turn to humor, then we get to dismiss it, right? Yeah. Like the, the, the wife beat a tea, the – And the other dismissal is one that – personally just causes me so much pain but when a woman is killed or goes missing it's only on the news while it's a whodunit right so the first night woman found dead woman's gone missing woman's left family uncharacteristic and I sit on my couch every night and I go it was the husband it was the husband it's the husband and the third night I go it was the husband and then there's no more news the actual fact the woman has been murdered by a husband is of no news interest only only if she if we don't know who did it or we don't know who she is it's only a whodunit. We totally uh, accept that women die of part of violence in New Zealand as a matter of course. That in itself is not of interest to people. That's the dismissal that kills me. And I, 
kind of watch them so watch them at a rate of about once a week in the paper on the news and stuff and I think about those women those women's lives and the 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 way that we accept that I still to this day and for the rest of my life will find absolutely chilling and there's just one little story I'd like to share about that which is again I'm not a poster child and my experience was quite mild but I have a broken mastoid bone and I bet you don't know where yours is but I do because mine's broken and it's the bone that goes behind your ear and what happened in that particular case actually doesn't matter what happened it was really horrible and it's really painful several decades later on those kind of crisp cold days it really hurts and I hate that right because I think to myself 25 years later you're not walking around thinking about me but I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about that and I think and when I think imagine if you're in a relationship for 20 or 30 years not two what is your body like like what are you carrying? Mm. Uh, what 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 must that be like? Because those injuries accumulate, and, you, and your body gets really really broken. Right? Those are scary and horrible lives, and we do take it for granted. Well, we do it. That's a normal part of our life. Yeah, and then Deborah, the direct correlation is every single professional sports player who for the rest of their lives have cauliflower ears or the flipping busted ACL or the hip that's popped, whatever. But for the rest of their life, they need to get out and they do it. And every time they do, it reminds them of like, it's their, you know, that's the that's their pound of flesh for what they did. But what they did by choice to do it, the difference with this is yeah. it's not by choice because you were then in that situation to do it. So it's like a, yeah. it's like an unwanted yeah. scar, which is forced upon you from forces that w- weren't your own. Right. Yeah. I, I remember. So when my dad was, you know, I don't, I don't talk about, I guess I'll probably be similar to yourself and watch my words. When my dad was, uh, when I was 11, you know, when my dad had a double brain hemorrhage. Um, and so he, I was man of house at 11. He went back to the brain capacity of a six-year-old. Um, his head got all stuffed up, right? Like he wasn't him. Like he was a different, different dude. Like, you know, angry, violent, all that stuff. So, you know, like I can, I understand it. My, and going on, my mum yeah. is now work for like Salvation Army and Women's Refuge and and, and and all that stuff too. And we live in Aranui. We're on the, we're on the sickness benefit and, and all that stuff. And, I was thinking about the moments that it does for kids, right? Like um, each time there's explosive emotion from someone who you look up to, it instantly timestamps that whole thing in your head. Like every time, like every time I see a pair of like, it sounds so stupid, but for me, like every time I see this like long pair of kind of white skis, I see when my dad lost it and was about to go and like cut them up in half for my sister because she didn't clean her room or some shit, right? Like he wasn't there. But when I see that thing, it imprints in my head, like my sister about to lose her skis, whatever the thing may be, but you know, and as well, it's these, um, these timestamps of moments for every time, you know, it's colder than like that. I'm imagining on those days, whatever it may be, you think about them. Oh, this is going to, I'm going to feel this way because yeah. I know that what's going to happen. Yeah, and it's I not even the, it's that kind of, yeah. And last year, my sister made me this really nice woolly hat. And now I, I, I deliberately put on my woolly hat with the love from my sister um, and say, fuck you, you know, like, um, but I, yeah, it's frustrating because I know that he's not stomping around thinking about me. Um, yeah. What's well, like that thing hurt people? Was it hurt people, hurt people? Um, hurt people, yeah. At least, 
it, it's well there's a it's a huge amount of lack of self-awareness of men right of of, of the abusers because obviously there are many situations where sometimes the the man the, the, the man in the relationship is actually um the victim and and weirdly enough there's been social yes. experiments yes. in public yes. and they get laughed at they get laughed at yes. in public but then it flips and everyone jumps in but it's like well it's the same thing but different how is it equal anyway um yeah, and I've just been wondering about this lack of self-awareness from the man's side because when they don't feel, um, when they don't know themselves well enough either with where they're at or happiness or whatever it may be, if they don't have a routine or a process or a system to go through those things, whether it be, you know, like Pucky, you know, goes to the gym and does this thing, whether it's me, yeah. I go, go to the boxing bag or go for a walk or try to play golf or you need those escape. If you don't have that um, self-awareness mm -hmm. around to know how you tick first, all that happens yeah. is you, A, if you don't verbalize or get active, you build that shit up and then it explodes. Every single time, it might take years. Like I've got one person who's in a relationship that I know, well, that's been not happy for years, but it's going to build, build, and it's slowly building and you can just see it slowly building. One day, it's going to pop. And then usually, unfortunately, at the end, the pop is way, way worse than if it's, you know, to, to the front. So then I just wonder as well of like how you can... um you know how you can drive drive home to the abusers that how they need to actually not try and figure to know themselves first. And like, I'm not a flipping counselor. I'm not an advisor. I'm not impressed. The same as you. We're just kind of, I guess, outsiders yeah. or insiders with our experiences. But you know, when you um, do you think that the do you think the approach? Maybe let's go go to the government side for a second. Do you think the government or the DHBs or health system, whatever it is, has a has a good grasp on the scale of what it actually is because I know they're saying like the majority of them don't even report them and there's all these kind of the data's way off with and blah, 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 blah. With my corporate hat on, I'd say the outcomes are shit. So whatever they're doing isn't working. And so that's not to say yeah. that there's not funding and there's not well-meaning stuff going on and people doing good things, but our statistics are appalling and they, they mm. condemn all of us. So so whatever they're doing, they should take a they should start with which what I would do at work, which is this isn't working, stop do something else. And I would absolutely, as we talked about, I would put funding into men. That's not to say I take funding off women. Women do need to leave, and I'd hate anyone to think I'm not suggesting that. But when women leave, don't let's leave them on their own. Let's give them security mm. and not a piece of paper, but genuine security, as in, you know, men patrolling their houses at night kind of security. Let's keep them safe and recognise their heightened risk. Help them plan. Let's not just leave them on their own and hope that they're not, you know, that, that one statistic. Um, so I think there has to be policy change. I think there has to be men holding other men to account, but that's got to happen at both a cultural and a policy level. Um, I think, too, your Oof. point is insight's really hard, right? Um, and there's a saying that an unexamined life isn't worth living, and I really believe that. Um, what's brave about Puck is that insight, right? Like knowing and confronting your own imperfections, particularly when you've had an effect on other people, is really hard. I've got a grown-up daughter, and we've had conversations over the last year, which turns out I wasn't a perfect mother. And some of the things that I did um, were difficult for her, and they caused her harm. And those were the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life. Um, but I had to, or I didn't have to, I had a choice, right? I could have either had a relationship with her where we had cups of tea on birthdays and Christmas, um, or I could have gone in there with her and listened to her and accepted her her life and what happened to her. And at one point I was crying and she said, 
oh god i knew you'd do this this is what i was gonna tell you and i said to her i'm crying i'm not dying you know keep talking just because i'm crying doesn't mean you've got an obligation to stop or just you know like it's really sad right but it's okay and that was kind of a breakthrough moment for us and so that's kind of a really small example but I think if you want to look at mana and you want to look at tough guys, what Puck's done to front up and front up publicly is one of the hardest things that people do. And I think a lot of men would run a mile rather than do that. You know, in my experience of violence is it's always minimised. I didn't punch you, I pushed you. I didn't, you know, this, I did that. And they won't even describe what happened. Um, they will never admit to the yeah. word abusive or even violent. Um, they, won't even, they won't even name those things. Um, so I think I think what we need to do is make that self-examination and insight something that's brave and hard because men it is. Well, you need those. You need those with mana that have gone through it that others would would respect. It's like the pucks of the world, right? It's 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 basically you know putting fuel on the fire of of awareness around the pucks that can turn it around so it creates yeah. more breadcrumbs of positivity of an opportunity what could be like I, I think about you know let's for argument's sake say um uh, jacinda was in a past previous relationship or whatever and and she had a direct personal deep feel like let's say if you were prime minister right i'm imagining yeah. that your approach and energy towards this issue would be potentially substantially different from le other leaders that have come come before you right it's because it's so close to home for it do you yeah. think that the groundswell of you know kindness and this and that like how would you strategically try and you know navigate those political waters to to, to get the outcome for for more support in this lane like what is the like how do you even pr prove or do it if the data is not fully there, but it's a big problem and, you know, the, the once we're warriors effect and all the rest of it. Like how would you actually, how would you strategically try and approach taking on government to make a radical shift in potential policy around domestic violence in New Zealand? I do a ministry for men rather than a ministry of women. And I'd give them the brief oh. and I would devolve the power and the funding to them. Um, and then I would thing? stand back. Is ministry back. for men a thing? No. There is a women's ministry, but it's not a men's one, but I would do a men's one. Um, and I would devolve power and responsibility and funding to them to figure it out. Why isn't that? And I would trust why is there a, and I would trust, I would trust them to do that. Just 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 quick question. Why is there a ministry for women but not ministry for men? Because women um, need assistance as a group who has some discriminatory effects in the way that society is set up for them. But the problem with that is men have specific issues and problems as we've been discussing that don't sit anywhere, they're a bit in health, but mostly in the justice system, let's face it. Most of these problems yeah. with men are facing the system, which again, if we look at an outcome, um, makes it profoundly worse. Um, so there is no- I love that idea. I, yeah. I absolutely love that idea. Why, why does Aotearoa not have a ministry for men? And then you get an advisory board of a Puck, yeah. a Mike King, a Craig Hudson, a flipping John Kerwin, uh, you know, just weapons, just like um, mana. Have you read Sam Walker's autobiography? No. It's amazing. Um, his family was, oh, my God, it's, it's a grueling read. But he talks about his position in bringing his whole family together after years of um, – phenomenal violence including sexual violence um throughout 
his family systems. And he talks about how as the kind and gentle soul that he is, he both worked on healing that in his whanau, but also got them to front up um, mm. and did all, the, did all the kind of mahi on on the next generations and how they all interact with each other. So I put him on the board too. Love it. I like his vibe. I've never actually met him, but I've got a couple of um, mutual friends who are quite close with him and um, su- supposedly he's um, deceptively deep with deceptively deep was kind of the, the, the vibe. Yeah, nice, right? Like his book is unbelievable. I don't know whether he wrote it was a ghost or it might have been both. Um, but yeah, the way Either that he way, presents. The, the, the substance of the message, yeah. You'd have no idea what his background was. So... If we reverse engineer this last hour, we've now come up with, yep. we've got a ministry for men funded by government. We've got the yep. uh, the first campaign, which is either done by, you know, like a flipping Sachi and Sachi or a Colenza or whatever, um, using Puck as yep. the poster child, copy pasting the blueprint of what's existed for mental health, yep. doing it for men around domestic violence to try and have more tough men to do more tough things. There you go. And we've got a few beautiful ones like Stan and Pete's doing the soundtrack. There you go, done. And then they do. You have a, um, you know, a yearly it means meet means meet up. You do the flipping, you know, the the Eden Park, you know, the, yeah. the man the man um the man festival, whatever it is. Uh, you get them together and and do something yeah. that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. This has been bloody great. I think we've 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 covered some bloody good ground here, bro. I'm, I'm really I, I'm I'm happy with where we've landed with this. I'll collaborate with you anytime. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, all right. Well, I, I know you are um, an extremely busy lady. You've got to go back into some boardrooms, put Mike in check, mate. You've got to fucking get Mr. Bennett's back back in the mix, get, get some more um, things rolling. Um, yeah. T- tell him I, I said hi. He's a, he's a, he's a good man. Oh, um, I'm just kind of one of these, uh, these loyal characters. When someone does a small little thing that doesn't need to be loud, but that makes a difference that I think like it was, a, it was a very simple gesture. He probably won't remember it, but for me, I'm like, you know what? Like I'm always going to flip and shop at Z because that's flipping epic. What a good bastard. Like shit cheer. Done. He's, he's, he's a beautiful man. He's a really good man. Yeah. And I also props and kudos to you. Cause you know, you're talking about, you know, decades of, of this sort of emotional scarring and stuff that, or these experiences that you've been through. And I don't, I'm imagining you probably haven't talked about it like this in the in a public setting. So uh, big, big kudos to you as well for that. Yeah, no, it was amazing talking to you and um, love to everybody that's in these situations and hope to you to getting out. Well said. Um, appreciate it, uh, Deborah. Thanks so much for your time. And I'll just put it right down here. Um, and uh, enjoy the rest of that awesome time. You too. Thanks for, your, thanks for chatting with us. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Cool. Okay. See, See ya. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Blackett. Great banter. Good solid chat. Really good. Uh and deceptively deep, which was rad. So I appreciate it so much. Um Kate Latimer just says, um, Deborah, you're raw, authentic, and brave in your talk today. Need to change more what has been normalized and call it these enabling behaviors. Um uh, Jasmine says, hey, Rebecca, uh, whose book was Deborah talking about? She was talking about Stan Walker's book, Stan Walker's book. Um, so that is, that is that. All right, team, good chat, good banter. And I'm not going to lie, it was, it was pretty – I didn't know how to successfully navigate talking about domestic violence. Um, it is something that I um, 
am very well aware of and friends have been close to and I've been close to and I, I understand it and I didn't know how to navigate the waters of talking about a very touchy thing. Um, but I was extremely stoked and honored that um, that Deborah jumped on and said what she would. So she had actually reached out to me and said um, that she wanted to talk. She had a comment. I messaged her like, hey, would you want to talk about it? She opened up and where she's come from there's always another side or a woman's side to, to things so it was awesome to get pucks taste on this and then to have it followed up from the other side from um deborah um awesome and also extremely smart weapon on the corporate side too you could tell she has a fucking brain so anyway that's us team uh enjoy the rest of the day be good be great and i'll talk to you soon adios peace